0: Welcome to the commentary magazine daily podcast. today is Monday August 22nd 2022. I am John Puhortz the editor of commentary magazine with me as always executive editor Abe Greenwald in California. Hi Abe. Hi John. senior writer excuse me no longer senior writer. I'm sorry media commentary columnist and uh senior fellow research fellow senior fellow at the american enterprise institute as of september yes as of september senior (laughs) yeah in incoming senior fellow at the american enterprise institute christine rosen hi christine hi john and associate editor noah rothman hi noah hi john author of rise of the new puritans star of friday nights real time with bill maher uh we are we are we scan we, we scan the country here abe is in california i'm in chicago Christine is in Washington. Noah is in New Jersey. So we now we have the pulse of the country right below our fingertips and everything we say now has national significance and is been firmly established by deep reporting on the ground reporting. Noah is in Los Angeles, Abe's, uh, further South, uh, Christine, of course, right there in the nation's capital. And I'm in the heartland. I was in Chicago. I went to Milwaukee for a night. So I've not only have I been in Chicago, but I've been in the crucial bellwether state of Wisconsin. And I can tell you right now that only time will tell whether Ron Johnson or Mandela Barnes will end up as the senator from Wisconsin. Wise words. that's the kind, that's the kind of Detailed shoe-leather reporting that you're getting today from the Commentary Magazine podcast. Um, I want to talk about some misconceptions here. Um, There's an NBC News poll out uh, yesterday, I guess, or maybe this morning. I don't know, at some point in the last 24 hours. And um, liberals are getting very excited because, according to this poll's data, the number one concern facing Americans is now, quote, threats to democracy, unquote, at 21%. And so apparently people think this is really good news for Democrats because, of course, they talk about Trump and the Republicans being threats to democracy and all the election deniers being winning their primaries and getting elected and threats to democracy. And um, I think they're bonkers because the threats to democracy line is now a bipartisan concern and the raid warrant search whatever you want to call of mar-a-lago is being characterized by republicans all over the country as an example of the liberal democratic deep state threat to democracy that uh, levers of power are being used by uh, Trump's successor and by the judiciary and by our law enforcement agencies to quell the rightful ruler of Westeros and uh, and 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 take him down. So when you see a number like that, you cannot and should not assume that that number means that issues are moving in the in Democrats' favor. There is a elite tinge to the threats democracy argument from democrats that is election laws are going to be this it's a theoretical it's not not theoretical but it is it is a process problem that is being presented by the democrats in terms of the threat to democracy that the process is going to be interrupted and destroyed and ruined but among populist republicans the idea here is that the powerful are trying to use their power to lever them against the less powerful who have this tribune in Trump, and that therefore the threat to democracy isn't procedural, it is raw use of illegitimate government power. And uh, one appeals more to elites, one appeals more to sort of, you know, the hoi polloi or the rank and file or, you know, ordinary people or high school educated, whatever you want to call them. And these are, once again, we are in the realm of the two different courts of public opinion. And I don't think this is good news. I mean, it's not bad news for Democrats. I don't think it's the good news for Democrats. Does anybody want to? This is kind of
1: frustrating. So I'm, I'm reading the the poll itself, the breakdown. It does not break down this question on most important issues facing the country by demographics doesn't break it down by party by gender by age uh so you can just kind of guess at who's saying what here but they changed the the verbiage um in may of 2022 uh cost of living which has declined in this poll and is giving democrats all this reason to celebrate um was the first choice followed by jobs in the economy and The third, in May of 2022, was voting rights and election integrity. That has now become threats to democracy. Um, You can, I suppose, put those two things together and and make that overarching uh, headline about it. But I don't. These are two different things. This is completely different language, and there's no pollster that I know who would say that this completely different language can is is a, a reflection of a trend the you trend can track, is not broken you can't, you can't track it from may to august trend.
0: because because the term is entirely different so we don't know whether threats to democracy in may would have scored anywhere near where where it scores in august and as i say the threats to democracy phraseology is much more in tune with getting the sort of thing that a Republican might agree with as opposed to election integrity, which is something that is very much a core elite Democratic issue. Abe,
2: I think there is actually a through line here, which is that both terms at different points were sort of Democrat Democrat branding terms. Um, They were talking about voting rights and election integrity at one point. And then they were talking about threats to democracy at another. So in that sense, it's possible that this is better news for Democrats because they because the the poll is really sort of doing this service um, for Democrats by 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 polling, by testing out their slogans no, yeah, well, what happened I, to Bill McInturf because, here, though?
1: I mean, this is his whole job. What's that? Yeah, Bill, Bill, Bill Mcinturf,
2: McInturf is
0: a pollster, is the Republican pollster. Well, this is a bipartisan poll, right? Is, is this only McInturf?
1: No, no. Okay, it's, so it's, it's Jeff Hart. Hart. Yeah.
0: Okay, so Hart and McInturf. So they do this, they have these two pollsters and Democratic-aligned pollster and a Republican-aligned pollster who do this poll together. But I think an important point you're making here, I think you may be putting the horse before the cart or something like that, because... Democrats stopped talking about voting rights and election integrity and started talking about threats to democracy about six weeks ago, which suggests that they poll tested these terms and discovered that voting rights and electoral integrity were not jazzing the ears of the American people, but that threats to democracy, if you sat around with focus groups, or you did test of messages that that was ringing a, a better bell. But see, this is
3: where I I really think the Democrats are... are walking a risky line in terms of strategy. They constantly get themselves into their own form of like a hyperbole arms race with these sorts of terms, right? Remember ultra MAGA? That was also one of those internally polled ideas that, oh, people are going to love it if we start talking about ultra MAGA. And they did that with misinformation and disinformation to the point where the term itself becomes a symbol for those on the other side of the political aisle for just absolute gaslighting that the other side is trying to do, trying to label things that aren't what they are claiming to be and insisting in the mainstream media, aiding and abetting them in that, that they are something else. So I, I wonder, I mean, threats to democracy has been something that's been popping up since Trump became president with the same frequency that we've heard the term fascism overused and flogged to within an inch of its life. So that anyone who has any historical understanding of fascism just puts their head in their hands and shakes their head. So I, I, I think this could potentially backfire on them in the same way that some of their other hyperbolic tricks have backfired on them.
2: I just just to add to my point for a second. I just want to th- think about this. Do Republicans uh, and right wingers who are have their concerns about about our system? Do they say threats to democracy, or do they say deep state regime, rigged, re- regime rigged elections, socialism?
0: Well, they don't. But I'm I'm just saying, if you said to people, if you said to uh, a, a very Trumpy Republican. Is there a threat to our democracy? They might very well say, yes, there's a threat to our democracy. It's the deep state. It's the F- misuse of the FBI. It's going after your political opponents with the legal system. Uh, it's been going on since before Trump was president. Then he was president. They kept doing it. Now he's not president. So you can see how that's not the terminology that they might use, but it's not terminology they would reject the way Christine says. They'll reject voting rights. They know that the term voting rights refers very specifically to the idea that, you know, same day voting is racist or that, you know, voter ID is racist or something like that. And that you turn, you turn, you you play that music in their ears and it's discordant and they don't like it. But I'm not sure that threats to democracy is discordant um, in the same way. And therefore they, they might be willing to say, yeah, I'm worried about threats to democracy. That would be my, inter- I have no proof of what I'm saying here. I mean, this is just an interpretation. Um, but I'm, I, no, I I can't really look through this now as we're talking. So what I did see, but I want to ask you, because you, you said in May, it was cost of living and jobs and then threats and then uh, voter integrity and all that, right? So, but in this poll, if you add up, cost of living and jobs and the economy in general, the most concerned number added together is 31%, whereas the threats to democracy is 24. Do you see what that
1: number would have been in May if you added? So that, yeah, just I'll I'll break down the numbers as I'm looking at them right now. Threats to democracy, first choice, 21%. Combined choice, 29%. So first and second choices, followed by, this is this poll this month. Followed by cost of living at sixteen percent for a first choice, also twenty nine percent for a second choice. Jobs in the economy fourteen percent first choice, combined choice twenty eight percent. Followed okay. by a whole series of other issues. That okay. was that's this month. So uh, me, in May, okay. yeah. just to establish the yeah. trend, May of twenty twenty two, cost of living was twenty two percent, as opposed to today sixteen percent, thirty six percent for a combined choice. So it was a much much broader uh, re- resonance followed by jobs in the economy in, in May at 18%, and uh, followed thereon by voting rights and election integrity at 12%. So there has been a movement, especially so when you change the language around this thing.
0: There's some movement, but but I still say that jobs, cost of living, and the economy are actually the same thing. Now, cost of living basically measures inflation, period. So in other words, inflation as as the only as the as this sort of like galloping runaway concern was higher in May than it is now, right? You said sixteen percent or at at number one cost of
1: living, cost of living twenty two percent in May, sixteen percent presently. Right. For the right. first okay. choice, very first thing that's on voters' minds is the chief issue facing the country. Right. There's
3: also we should also add uh, for for those who are single issue voters on abortion, the language and rhetoric post jobs about abortion rights has become about democracy, right? If you look at the the way, I mean, there was just an op-ed, interestingly, in the uh, New York Times uh, over the weekend by some uh, constitution, some law professors who are arguing that you know, really, the Constitution hasn't worked out for the left, so maybe we should just abandon that and start thinking of other ways to to justify and rationalize uh, the power that we seek. Um, very uh, creative argument you can give it that, but this idea that there's a not, that one of our uh, three branches of government is itself entirely corrupted in the in the post obs era is a very uh, salient. Talk Talking point on the left, and particularly among uh, abortion rights. Voters.
0: Right. So, interestingly enough, you have so you have uh, Sam Moyne of Harvard, and some uh, who was one of the co-authors of that op-ed, and Luke Menand in the New Yorker, both coming out oh, pretty much at the exact same time, saying our Constitution stinks and we should ignore it. Now, this is interesting because there is a significant body of opinion on the right that has basically been saying the same thing, right? That's the kind of Adrian Vermeule, like the Constitution is. You know, morally silent and shouldn't be morally silent um and uh, originalism is a is a fool's game and a and a dead letter and a, and a and a and a mistake um so we have an interesting congruence now of radicalism on the left and the right saying the constitution sucks what matters is power we know it's good we know it's bad and we should be using the levers of populist power to uh, change the way we deal with issues and to change the structure of things. We shouldn't be governed by this ancient document that in each of the eyes of these two two camps doesn't speak properly to the moral realities of the present. Um, That's another reason to think that we are in this bizarrely revolutionary moment. There's very much this, I know I constantly harp on this, but there are great, great similarities here in the questioning of the value of the american experiment to the late 60s and early 70s where it's stuff like this was happening on both sides and where the rise of ideas like originalism you know where you know we really should be basing ourselves in the in what it was that the constitution actually intended the structure and approach of our laws and our institutions to be that was kind of a, an effort to step away from these radicalisms most of which were on the left then and very not not that much on the right but but a lot of this was all sort of subsumed in the right a kind of small is beautiful uh you know we need to be radically jeffersonian on the one hand and then also why do we have all these mediating institutions like states and the electoral college and stuff like that that hampers the ability for us to get do good things for people everywhere at the same time and so we should be destroying all of that. That was all only on one side of the ideological ledger. Now it's kind of on both sides of the ideological ledger. And there isn't that much moderating them. But it is interesting that this should have happened, should have arisen at the same moment. And then you have these conversations about threats to democracy, all of which are redolent of this, right? Because the idea is that the ultimate threat to democracy, if you're a liberal now, really is the existence of the electoral college and the structure of the senate right they say this is really unfair first of all no one we don't directly elect a president if we did four of the last five presidents would be would have been democratic and secondly um what's this with the states and the senate and the fact that you know Wyoming has the same number of senators as California that's not right that's not democratic that's a million people versus 38 million people. No fair. Like they we're not equally represented. And then as Luke Manan says in this piece in the New Yorker, that's the point, but he's against, it. I'm for it and he's against it. The idea is that there are, we're not a, we're not a radical one person, one vote democracy. We never have been that that way lies madness and destruction. We know that from the experiments with it before, particularly in a complicated and very large country. You need all of these competing institutions, including ones that aren't elected at all, like the Supreme Court, right, or like the Senate was until 1913. Um, But so we find ourselves in this position where this idea that our democracy is broken and isn't working right, if you see people responding in polls saying our democracy is under threat, you can't assume that there is a clear ideological component to it the way you could when it was voting rights and election integrity, right? That everybody understood, including people who are low information, kind of could suss out what they were going for there. which is, you should also...
3: It should also be put alongside the right direction, wrong direction polling we've seen recently, where a, a large number of Americans—and this means it is bipartisan—feel the country's going in the wrong direction. They might believe it's going in the wrong direction for different reasons, and, and for the sort of bifurcated uh, way that you just described, John, I think really well how how each side uh, politically sees this. But but the Malays to borrow from another 70s thing, I mean, it is right, the, late, the 70s, uh, early 70s in particular had inflation, had arguments about abortion, had a president in crisis or a post president in crisis. It, there are many, many similarities. But I do think that the right direction, wrong direction gives us a sense of just the overall public mood is very sour and that's sour on both sides for different reasons. But that actually should concern the party that's in power right now as we head towards midterm elections.
2: So yeah, let, just, yeah go ahead. John, on your point about the about the, the, the changing terminology and, and how um, voting rights would would have been a, a clear indicator of one side of the argument being in, endorsed, um, I think that's also because when the when the issue was voting rights, um, there was a very clearly understood counter argument on the right, which was about voter fraud, and and things like mail in ballots and 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 whatnot. So you you knew you knew exactly where someone stood. If they said the problem is voting rights. Right. That's
0: a very good point. And also the threat to democracy there was a the voting, the threat to democracy, the voting rights and threat to democracy is crystal clear to Democrats on the grounds that uh, if theoretically 100 percent of the people who could vote did vote and you made it as easy for them as possible to vote when they could vote then they would all vote for Stacey Abrams and she would be governor of Georgia and not Brian Kemp and therefore the election was rigged and it was unfair and for some reason it's okay to make that argument if you're if you're they and it's not okay to make the argument that um what what did they call it in California when they were picking up the ballots? I can't remember. Harvesting? Harvesting. When they, that ballot harvesting was okay because it, it helped you. And of course, that's okay because there are 38 million uh, Californians and they're mostly Democratic, so that's okay. It's very easy in this case to, um, like in Latin, sort of decline the argument backwards so that whatever term you're using... Whatever the modality is, as long as it helps your side, it's moral, legal,
1: and proper even, and even in Even in that sense, we may be interpreting this question too literally because you know people don't use the word democracy to mean democracy. They sort of use it as an abstract concept to generally express the health of the American political experiment. They don't mean, as you say, one person, one vote. Nobody ever does when they talk about democracy. So – it may just be yet another expression of dissatisfaction with the general direction of the country, which is obviously very high, as Christine said, three quarters of the public. And the worst possible finding in this survey is the idea now that six and 10, 61 percent say that they're willing to carry a protest sign for an entire day. No one should be willing to protest anything, much less
3: <laughs> yes, we an entire <laughs>
1: day holding up signs that say women's rights or protect the Second Amendment or whatever. Just people are just mad, just angry generally, incohate, directionless anger. And to the extent that that is dissatisfaction with the state of the country and democracy is a synonym for the state of the country, albeit one that's ill-defined, uh, it just might be another metric along the lines of, well, I'm not happy.
0: Right. Well, the public is not happy. And what's interesting is that, let's say, if you take that number, which is... Not a very big decline, actually, 20, what, like 20, 24 to 18 or whatever it was on the cost of living. Like it, 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 it seems very substantial, but first of all, you're talking about polling with
1: nine different categories.
0: And if you were to try and to, it's not as though they, I'm sorry, in I'm
1: interrupting you, but it's not as though people's impressions of the economy has gotten better. They've gotten worse. Right. Two thirds say that we're in a recession presently. Right.
0: Well, what I mean is like, so if you say, okay, well, people aren't as panicked, let's say, about inflation as they were before. There are two possibilities for that. One of which is they've settled in for the long run. It's there. It's there like having a not even a chronic illness. It's there like you have a, I don't know. I mean, I'll use my own analogy. You have Achilles tendonitis and it's there all the time and it hurts, but you can't, there's really nothing to fix it quite except major surgery and you don't have time to do that or you're not doing that right now but it's not like you're standing around every minute saying oh my god my achilles tendonitis is killing me i can't even think straight similarly if you live through inflation for six or eight or ten months or something like that um you're like it's like a reality of life that doesn't mean that since it's since you're like used to it or you're kind of resigned to it, that it, it that if it were on the ballot, that they could cure, if you could cure your Achilles tendonitis today, you could vote for it, that they would, that wouldn't be the first thing that you would vote for. So uh, it's still the case that the most important direct issue facing the country today, even if people are saying something vague, like threats to democracy, to themselves, it's got to be inflation. Because that actually is something that affects them. The threats to democracy don't affect them yet, really. Or and, they've so affected them that the country's ruined anyway because they made Trump
2: possible or whatever. And there's, there is actually an instant cure to threats to democracy. If, if, this is, if this is your issue, which is that your side wins in an election, then suddenly there's no threats to democracy. <laughs> Where, I mean, in, where in inflation yeah. you have to you continue to face and there's yeah. no there's no getting out of that by a news cycle or an election.
0: Look, it's very simple. There was this too. There's been this two weeks or two and a half weeks of uh, democratic glee at the Senate polling numbers in the, you know, in the in the states with the bad candidates going their way and some other things, including, you know, the fact that um, inflation was flat in the month of uh June, uh, which isn't to say that it went away that it was exactly the same it didn't grow from May to June and therefore Biden said it was zero, um which was pretty striking since inflation is still running at eight and a half percent annually. Um, but there was this kind of glee moment and now we have we have the average of averages the poll average still has Republicans, up by a point in the generic, that is if you were to vote Republican or Democrat, would you vote Republican or Democratic today if the election were held today? And um, that is exactly the same number as in 2014, uh, when Republicans won 16 seats in the House and nine Senate seats. Now, it was six points in Republican favor in 2010, but remember, Republicans won this wave, House election, 63 seats, but only won seven Senate seats and did not take the entirety, didn't take the Senate back because of bad candidate quality, right? We had the famous bad candidates in in Missouri and, uh, and uh, Arizona. Um, I keep getting which states are, Delaware. Was Delaware 12 or 10? Christina Donald 12. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, so 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 you Mike could. Mike Castle would have won that seat. Right. You could say the wave in the Senate was halted because because there are candidates that were so lousy that they could not they they could not take advantage of the wave. And that's really the Democrats' hope now for November is that I think they had they've had this moment of thinking that issues were turning toward them, but it's really not issues. It is whether or not candidates will remain so on it's trump
1: the last two and a half months have reminded the Republican and reminded everybody in the electorate that donald trump is still front and center of the republican party and they don't like it well republicans don't mind it but but independents
0: don't like it independents by i don't know was it three-fifths don't like it or even worse
3: and can i can i just add one more thing into what you said earlier about the inflation point because i think this is important and and Polit- We're all political types, and we like to look at the horse race aspect of the midterm elections, and, and definitely the bad candidates that Republicans are putting up are going to harm them, as they did uh, in the special election in Georgia uh, earlier, a couple of years earlier. But the inflation stuff and the recession stuff, that talk, the, the way the Democrats, and particularly the Biden administration, have coped with that. First, the denial that it was happening then the shifting of blame to everyone but them and their policies, followed by the, oh, it's actually not, we're not going to call it a recession, like the gaslighting stage. They're doing they're still going to be doing that to people throughout the midterm elections. And I think you're absolutely right, John. People are still, I think it's what one, one poll I saw said, like 60% of the country still thinks that the Biden administration is not handling the economy that well. That's better than it was a few months earlier, but that's still a terrible number. And they are not happy with how things are going. Most people think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Better and the party in charge of that, the party that controls government right now, is the Democrats. And I don't, I know in individual races, some of those Democrats are speaking to those issues to their constituents. But the overall messaging that the Biden administration, in particular, is doing is not helping those candidates. In some, in some ways, I think it's undermining their attempts to actually connect to voters on those kitchen table issues.
0: So let me let let me step back for a minute and talk to you about our friend Dan Senor and his podcast. Call Me Back, which, uh, you know, we love and which I talk about quite often. And I mentioned uh, on Friday, and I want to re- commend to you again, his just fantastic conversation this week with the non uh Israeli journalist, Mati Friedman, um, uh, who just has amazing range uh, as a writer on culture, a writer on politics, a writer on the depths of cultural issues in politics, his beautiful book, Pumping Flowers, about his experience of uh, being an Israeli in Lebanon, um, his new book on Leonard Cohen, the Canadian Jewish singer, poet, novelist, and how his his crisis of faith in the early 70s led him back to Judaism and ultimately to the uh, composing of the uh, signature I would say sort of Jewish song of our time hallelujah um Mati uh, and Dan have this just uh, fantastic conversation about the media and and its inability to get straight how to talk about Israel and the Palestinians in particular as though Israel and the Palestinians represent a kind of overall problem that 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 overshadows every other problem as well as as opposed to one, difficulty in a, in the middle of a whole series of relational questions between Israelis and Jews and Arabs and Arab states uh, and if you disaggregate them you can find solutions if you if you concretize them and put them all, together in one package uh, they are unresolvable and that for some reason the media really wants this to be unresolvable as opposed to part of a broader conflict because the broader conflict is actually has solutions to it that we've seen coming it's a fantastic conversation that's the call me back podcast with dan senor mm-hmm. find it on apple google play stitcher or wherever you get your fine podcasts our other friend david bonson as i've been telling you has such a deal for you. Free. That's the deal. Free education in economics. A 30 lecture course in economics with a fantastic syllabus. You can get it at Bonson.com. You go there, B-A-H-N-S-A-N.com. You look to the center at the top of the screen, you'll see the words economics course. You click on it fill in your information and you are ready to go with the history of economics, the history of economic ideas, the connections between economics and faith and human flourishing and political stability. It is a really um, sort of unprecedented uh, gift to people who uh, need to learn, want to learn, or want to be refreshed in their knowledge of this vital matter for all of us. So that's, that's David Bonson at Bonson.com, B-A-H-N-S-E-N.com, and then click on economics course. And speaking of economics and sort of the relation of economics, society, and our general uh, good health as a people, Uh, We have all been noticing of late this really extraordinary trend that the New York Times in particular seems to be husbanding, but that is all over the place, uh, which is this questioning in the wake of the pandemic of the value of work and how people are revisiting their understanding of work, their relation to their work, how they work, what they do when they work, if they should work what it is that work does for them and what it is that work does for other people. And what is so striking about this is this kind of peculiar assumption in this coverage that, you know, people kind of have a choice about whether to work or not. And and a lot of people choose to work. And then they discover that, you know what, it really isn't that satisfying And that they're not really living their dreams at work, and so they're going to stop working, and they're going to do something else. Now, that's fine, right, as long as what you're talking about is people making a living, supporting themselves, supporting their families, and what they do is up to them, and how they do it is up to them. It's just a question of whether or not they do it, and whether or not they are whether or not they are being self-sufficient adults and providing for others who are who need them to provide for them or to contribute to their provision. And that's kind of missing from this entire conversation. So I don't want to overdo it, but I'm just saying there's article after article in the New York Times and elsewhere about how work sucks and people have decided they don't want to go back to work because it sucks after the pandemic. And now they're being shamans or they're, they're starting they're going to grow flowers or something like that. And I, um,
3: it's yeah. actually a series in the Times called The Great Resignation. And I think it should have an asterisk under it that says no plumbers were interviewed for these stories because it's all knowledge. It's almost all knowledge or kind of white collar uh, office workers who are who are talking about their feelings about work and all of, in almost all of these pieces. Maybe they have some you know, people who work in trades and with their hands, maybe they have those interviews lined up and they're going to publish pieces about that. But so far, it's all people who, as you say, John, have the luxury of thinking about only wanting to do meaningful work and how but but the underlying theme and we've we've been back and forth on this a few times on our on our little internal text thread is that capitalism sucks. I think that would be the other little subtitle, which is why this has nothing to
1: do with the pandemic. Right. This long predates the pandemic and is a sentiment abroad on the utopian progressive left has been for some time. Recall, you know, uh, to a lesser degree, Nancy Pelosi's suggestion that Obamacare would allow you to be a full time poet Uh, and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's fabulously disastrous FAQ around the initial introduction of the Green New Deal, uh, in which uh, she talked about how the United States should, quote, uh, commit to, quote, guaranteeing a job. To all people of the united states and promise occupations for those who are quote unwilling to work because you should have the the liberty to be unwilling to labor as long as you have a guaranteed occupation and a guaranteed minimum income why would you that was a universal basic income argument too right
2: i don't i don't think this has nothing to do with the pandemic at all actually i i to me this comports with my personal definition of long covid which is the a a national sickness from which the 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 country must emerge if we are if we are to prosper. Um, The pandemic is is what sort of made the possibility of non-work a reality. Um, And and people got very accustomed to to um, anti-social behavior, to uh, not not doing sort of the foundational things that need to be done in 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 life. And part of this anti-work movement is the idea that work itself is somehow wrong or, or a mistake. Um, this, so it wasn't the way it was supposed to be. And we now know that because you could go for, you know, a year or, or, uh, sort of staying home a lot. Um, and there is a, a component to this that has to do with the non uh, uh, with, with, with more nuts and bolts, blue collar or, or, or just uh, lower level jobs, labor and whatnot. Um, There's this, there's this other idea of quiet quitting um, that I've, that I've seen. It's a big hashtag on social media. There was an article. There's an article about in the Washington post, There's one in the wall street journal. Quiet quitting is okay. If you're at a job that, that is uninspiring, um, don't really get, don't give it your all, uh, show up, um, you know, do, do a bit of what's asked of you and just kind of, you know, then, and, and do your own thing the most time, because yeah, the roots of this are definitely pre pandemic. And, and it has to do with the idea that, that work is, is just really about exploitation and you're doing your, your, you're just making capitalists and racists rich and uh, that's no way to live a life.
3: It's just the new version of this of the of the slowdown, right? This was this illegal tactic. Unionized workers would often do deliberate uh planned slowdowns of their work in a factory, for example, in order to punish the owners and to and to make demands of the owners that they felt they deserved. So it's it's kind of weirdly, it's it's taking a lot of the tactics of blue-collar union strategy and trying to apply them to knowledge class white-collar work. And uh, unfortunately, because much more of the work that the knowledge class does. And I'm including all of us in that is, is kind of ephemeral. <laughs> it, it, it just sounds like a lot of whining often. It ends up being a lot about feelings rather than like, I, I slowed down the production of this or that widget.
0: Well, okay. So, you know, we, we can understand that, you know, the first, the sort real first attacks on, on capitalism and the labor of capitalism come in the 19th century with the explosion of the Industrial Revolution and the real, the real, you know, sort of foundation of capitalism as the modern uh, mover of 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 economic relations between people. And so, you know, when Marx came along with Marxist ideas, or you read the work of Charles Dickens or something like that, what what you know about nineteenth-century labor was that uh, a lot of it was really, really bad. It was extremely unpleasant. It was physically arduous. It made you sick. If you were a coal miner, you would end up with black lung disease. If you were a physical laborer, you would be injured. There was very little in the way of support for you if something happened to you and all of that. And this rapid series of transformations that happened and outgalloped and outraced you know, the ability of society to kind of, you know, start putting breaks on employers' demands or on, you know, the on the relentlessness of the potential of the capitalist machine, whatever. Like it just, it was just, it was all happening too fast and there was too much to go on and too much to happen. And then over time, you started getting laws in the 19th century in Britain in particular, you know, the corn laws and the labor laws and child labor laws and all kinds of things that started humanizing this machine. Um, And now what we have, I think, is we're in the 21st century and much of work as we think of it, as people like us, and certainly people who read the New York Times and the Great Resignation think, is not visible would not have been visible or even explicable or understandable to any worker in the course of human history. Work was a physical act for people. They threshed, they, you know, they ground, they led, they, they slaughtered, they led cattle, they, they bartered and traded. They, it was their, the sweat of their brow made their livings possible. And now, It's all in our heads and in our fingers, and we sit sedentary as we do it. And we have a lot of time to think about what it is that is not fulfilling about what is going on here. But
3: but that's why they like that. That's why the overlay of like Marx's theory of the alienation of labor is so appealing to that class. It's like it's not just that work can be dreary and, you know, I got to do it to make paycheck. You know, the, the kind of very commonsensical understanding of work that previous generations took for granted they're not taking for granted anymore. And I do think Gabe's right that some of that's the pandemic, like especially the working from home or slowing down on one's work and not having to have constant oversight uh, by a knowledge class managerial person Uh, that Part of that that sort of feeling of freedom, weirdly, I think people don't want to give that up. But the idea that their labor is alienating in the sense that in a kind of Marxian sense is a conceit. And I think you're absolutely right, John. It's not They they are not alienated from the product of their labor. They just don't like their jobs and they don't like the structure of a nine to five workforce. That can be changed without making it a kind of globalizing thing about work.
2: There's another big difference between 19th century and and today, um, which is that if you were a laborer in the 19th century, your life outside of work was still pretty brutal. Um, today, your life outside of work can be quite amazing and dazzling um, for a whole range of, of sort of socioeconomic uh, uh, classes. You know, you, you, you have so much at your fingertips, you have every experience uh, available to you um, you can order anything at the push of a button. You can do it. so the, the contrast between having to, to work now and all the, the fun, quick satisfactions that that exist outside work is, is sort of like too great to to ignore. And there's this idea that, well, why are we still working? Look, look, at, look at all this amazing, all this amazing stuff that gets done when we're not working.
0: But I think you also have this um, break in the purpose of work, like, or, you know, so what is it that made the lowliest laborer with the worst job then and now, right? Who did something you would never want to do and had to do things physically you would never want to do. What is it that made his life meaningful? And it was always that he did it within a context of he was doing it for others, not just for himself, now for to feed himself, to clothe himself, but also he was supporting his children. He was helping his aged parents. He was helping his wife. He was a, You know, nobody, nothing, with nothing to show for it, but had immense personal dignity because at the end of the day and at the end of the week, he could know that there were people who were counting on him who were staying alive and were maybe moving forward and were going to have a better life. You know, his children would have a better life than he had and all of that because what he was doing had meaning to them. And we now have this world of people more alone than ever, more isolated than ever, who do things and then have these moments of saying, What am I doing this? Why am I coding? Why am I, you know, why am I writing this brief in a case? You know, why did I spend three years in law school and I'm now a fourth year associate? I'm writing a brief in a case that will eventually be settled. And everything that I'm doing here 100 hours a week, even if it's for a lot of money is just going to go down a memory hole and it's all just a kind of chess move. I'm part of a chess move. It's not meaningful. Well, if that person is married with three kids and one kid has a chronic illness and has a parent who, you know, is living with them because that parent has Alzheimer's or whatever. and, And that person is bringing in the money that makes it possible to have nursing care and this and that and the other thing. Every moment of his day at work is more than justified, right? More than justified. And so there's just, there's less of that. There's just less, and particularly for the people who are written about in this this context, are all talking about work as though it is the thing that is supposed to ennoble them and give them purpose and meaning and work, except for a very few people really creative people, I would say, work is not the thing that ennobles you or gives you meaning. What gives you meaning is everything else in life and that work makes that possible. You know, it's like Mr. Dick in David Copperfield. If you remember, there's this character named Mr. Dick who is this clerk, this lowly clerk in your iHeaps office and, and, uh, and uh, David works there too. And he's this just total you know, peon, nothing, you know, modest little guy doing nothing. And then David goes home with him one day and they get off the train and there Mr. Dick who lives with his mother or something has this magnificent garden. And, and he cultivates this crazy garden and this crazy, you know, he makes topiary figures and this and that and the whole point is Mr. Dick's life isn't, mr dick of the office
3: but but this is actually uh I will, a far less literary reference, but on um, Parks and Rec, that was Jerry, who was yeah. the, the idiot at the office who had this really lovely, flourishing family uh, life outside You're married of to Christy Brinkley. Married to Christy Brinkley of all people. <laughs> but, I, but that's because I think, I mean, I'm one of those people, I've had a, some sort of job since I was 14 years old and not a fun, meaningful job, like waiting tables, busing tables, you know, retail. Uh, I've done some desk jobs. I was a Kelly services girl, which does sound like prostitution and is a kind of form of prostitution because you get sent out to offices to fill in for for uh, temp, your temp worker um, most of them were not pleasant most of them taught me really important lessons about human nature and responsibility at a very young age most of the people who write these stories for the New York Times and who many of them who are featured in it don't have ever any experience with that kind of work a lot of our elite class now which is turned out of our elite institutions never does those jobs unless they want to briefly look like they have touch their toe into blue-collar life in order to put it on a resume. That's a problem. That's a two cultures problem that is that is growing uh, bigger, I think, by the year. And it's something that informs a lot of their understanding for work, work for them has to be meaningful. There's no career is their identity in a way that it isn't for many people.
0: So who created the concept of false consciousness, right? Marx is the exactly. this is a false consciousness about work that we are seeing here. And it is long COVID in some fundamental sense because, uh, because COVID provided people with the, an opportunity. There was this breach, right? It was like, why am I living here? You know, if I can work remote from here, I don't even like living in Syosset, Long Island. Maybe I can go to, you know, that place I like on the beach in, in South Carolina and rent an apartment there and I'll just live there. And then I can run on the beach if it's if I can't work in the office. That's all to the good. That's like a that's like a taking that's where you turn lemons into lemonade, right? But when the lemonade runs out, and then you're back to having to figure out what to do with lemons, making lemonade may not be the right thing to do with lemons, you know. Maybe there are other things to do with lemons. Speaking of long COVID, news just came over the wire to us, as you already know, as you're hearing this, that Anthony Fauci has resigned or will will, will leave his office in December to pursue the next phase of his, of his life. So um, I believe he has been working uh, for the federal government for 45 years. Um, he is, I believe, the highest paid person in the federal government and uh, has been in control of tens of billions of dollars of research money this is an enormous cultural change and not just because he's out. And uh, and uh, so does, do we take any larger meaning from, from this or should we just say, okay, well, he's 81 years old and it's, you know, he knows he's going to get $20 million for his memoir. And so uh, he's going to
1: try to, you know, do that. No, you have any? No, I'm generally inclined towards that view. <laughs> I don't think anything has precipitated this. He held out long enough so that, there wouldn't be any uh, general appearance of uh, pressure or exhaustion leading to this decision. So that's going to be the general takeaway. Uh, His legacy is one that's up to us to define, not necessarily him, but um, most likely there will be, as you say, this image-making campaign that will follow his stepping down from his, from his post. And it will be successful among those who want it to be successful and no one will ever, devote the kind of scrutiny to his conduct in the in the covid period that we will. And that's kind of annoying and sad, but that such is the nature of our our political uh, outlook.
2: I think he'll always sort of uh, have the benefit of the doubt when, when people look back in, in the idea that, well, no one really knew what was going on in the early days of this. And he, you know, he was just he was just trying like everyone else. And sure, he got some things wrong. He got some things right. And, and you know, uh, no one could have done any.
1: One any of better. the things about this cycle that is interesting is um, the way in which we talked about how Republican Senate candidates largely because of bad candidate selection on the part of primary voters are probably going to leave a lot of winnable races on the table. But the contrary is true of of governors. Governors have been outperforming even despite their um, their, some other MAGA tendencies. I'm thinking about Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania. I'm thinking about Carrie Lake in uh, Arizona, who are doing better than the Senate side. And there are probably many explanations for it. And mine is perhaps a little too cerebral. But nevertheless, um, when you're thinking about a COVID retrospective, and state-level initiatives, uh, because this wasn't really a federal issue. It was a state-level issue. Um, Republicans may have a little – the excesses to which Republican candidates are prone on the gubernatorial level may not necessarily make them unelectable uh, to their respective constituencies because of the experience, partly the experience in COVID. Um, If it was, for example, abortion rights, which is also a state level issue, you would expect to see Democrats outperforming and you haven't. Um, So perhaps a bit of a a reckoning on COVID is apparent in voters preferences for uh, for the executive of their respective states. I I think it's too soon to know
0: what what. Anthony Fauci's legacy will be and the real question will be over time if that legacy starts to seem more ambiguous as the need to defend every single decision during COVID uh, fades over time because things change and investigative reporting becomes what it is and people like we don't know what's going to happen you know were things oversold What well, you know what about the whole masking hypocrisy stuff where first he said, don't wear a mask. And he said, you're killing other people. If you wear, if you don't wear a mask and mm-hmm. all of that stuff or the, or the herd immunity thing, I'm upping the number to 90%. Well, now we're at 90%. What does he think? He's not even saying, well, we've, you know, we've, we've broken the pandemic. It's not, it's now, it's, it's now endemic and not a pandemic and all that. But I think that there is going to be a sense of discomfort at the Existence in government of these figures, and I would liken him a little bit here. Now we're really going to like alarm and outrage people to somebody like Robert Moses. So Robert Moses, the famous power broker of Robert Caro's legendary, properly legendary book about city planning and and the and the costs of um, of of mass government of large scale government action to transform geographical areas the thing about moses is he never properly had a real title his title was kind of weird he was like head of the this committee of that authority and that and the other thing but he was by leagues the most powerful person in the most powerful and the richest and most important state of new york you know in the first half of the 20th century and reshaped it completely and Fauci, this guy, was the head of the National Institute of Health. He sat there, you know, and he helped on AIDS. He did this. And, you know, George Bush at one point said, my favorite person in government is someone you've never heard of. Tony Fauci has done such great thing, all of this. And then over time, he ends up as an almost unimaginably powerful figure in health research, public health, and all of that. And people like that have no check on them there is very little in the way of checks on them. We don't know what research wasn't done because Fauci was the guy in charge of deciding what the government's theory of the case was in terms of this disease or that disease or the other disease. And we know that he had almost personal control every year of billions of dollars in research money. Now, that doesn't mean that he apportioned it himself. It was within his bureaucracy. But there were opportunity costs there of immense uh, significance. Um, And, you know, we have this whole, this is not him, I don't think, but we have this whole thing going on now about whether or not enormous amounts of money in Alzheimer's research was improperly directed as a result of a misunderstanding or fraudulence in the studies that were done that led to the lion's share of money going in this direction as, as opposed to the other direction. And I suspect... That there will be more people will look into this more. And now that he will no longer, now that the culture war over Fauci and COVID will probably largely be over by the middle of next year, that's when we're going to find out what his legacy is. What did we do the right thing with the money, untold amounts of money that were apportioned and approved for the federal government to hand out to people to try to cure disease? And mitigate the effects of disease in the United States over the past 35 years. And we just don't know the answer to that question, but I would say that based on his conduct during COVID, there is very good reason for us to question uh, his dogmatisms and, and his, and maybe his lack of flexibility in,, uh, you know, immodesty, let's say his extraordinary immodesty in the way he conducted himself, which suggests that he might have had much the same kind of immodesty in the way that he governed the handing out of that money and dealt with those public health issues. Um, But until then, be prepared to to have your newspaper and your TV stations provide you with a natural emetic because you're going to be throwing up for Saint months. St. Fauci over- has yeah. emerged. <laughs> yeah, St. Saint Fauci, Saint, yes, yeah, so we're, we're, he's basically going to get to read his, you know, that fantasy you have of, oh, if I could only just read my obituaries, well, he's going to be reading his obituaries now for five months and they're all, you know, almost overwhelmingly going to be positive except for people that he won't pay any attention to. And so just, just, just get ready and just make sure that you have a barf bag on hand. Uh, to deal with that stuff so uh this is the view from america chicago california new jersey washington we're all here everything we've said god's green earth we have now spoken for the country for today we'll be back tomorrow for abe noah and christine i'm john pod keep the candle burning.